You'll know that every new year or the beginning of the year, uh, a lot of churches really try to emphasize Bible reading plans. So uh, how can we try to get you to read the Bible in a year? There are some programs that do it over 90 days. That's, I mean, that's remarkable. But uh, usually what happens is people start in on the Bible reading plan, and uh, they're doing great early on in, in Genesis, start at the beginning of the book, and they're like, sweet, I'm going to do this. The early chapters of Genesis, really interesting, a lot of debate about how the earth was created and how many years and all that stuff, and where did uh, Adam's and Eve's other, where did the other kids come from who ended up marrying their, are they, are they cousins or brothers and sisters, and that's weird if they're married, like all sorts of weird stuff that you're going on in the early part of Genesis as you work through um, Genesis. Uh, there are some pieces that get a little bit boring, but eventually you get to a point, and it's oftentimes around this, this time, where, where you reach, uh, the, where you hit the rocks, um, and I, I call those the names. Uh, you know the names, yes? Uh, a lot of begatting going on. So he begat him who begat him or her and begat and begat and begat and begat and begat. If you know you ever watch a movie and they make fun of Christian preachers, this is usually what they do. The Simpsons have, you know, the, the pastor there and he's like, and you know, so it all begat for and he begat him. And, like, and that's the way that Christian churches are thought to be. If you want to go to church, you're going to go and hear all this boring, horrible names just being listed out. I'm telling you all of that because that's what this passage is. It's a whole bunch of names <clears throat> being, listed, being listed out. And you wonder to yourself, what's the point in all of this? Paul is actually to a point where he's finished his letter to, to the Roman church, and he's now going to issue some greetings. And you know how greetings go. Uh, if, you, if you greet one person, you have to greet them all. And so he hasn't been to the Roman church before, but he does know some people who are there so he starts off by greeting a few of the ones that you would expect, and then he kind of, you can just see him sitting in a, in a room somewhere thinking to himself, okay, but who else is there? Oh, yeah, Aristobulus is there. Oh, yeah, that couple is there. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And he, so he writes all of these down, and that's what you have in this passage. So here, I'm going to read it to you. See how far you pay attention. Here we go. Romans 16, verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe a servant of the church in Sancre, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prissa, Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Aristobulus, greet my kinsman Herodian, greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus, you know that arrogant family down the street, um, greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa, greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord, greet Rufus chosen in the Lord, also his mother who has been a mother to me as well, greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobas, Hermas and the brothers who were with them, greet Philologus, 
Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. How far did you make it? What, Phoebe? Right after Phoebe, you're like done, and then you came back at Narcissus. You're like, <laughs> Narcissus. <laughs> right? Like, we know that the Bible teaches us that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. But maybe not this part. <laughs> what can you learn from a list of names at the end of the book of Romans? A lot, actually. I've had to shrink down what I want to include here to four things. Four observations from Paul's greetings. Here's the first one. Ministry is a team sport. Ministry is a team sport. Now, I'm, I'm focusing in here on the fact that as I read those names, you might have noticed that a couple of them were called fellow workers. Fellow workers. That's a term that Paul uses in his letters to regard, uh, regarding those who serve alongside him. So you'll read that he, he calls guys like Titus or Timothy, kind of his protégés, fellow workers. The guys he travels with, Barnabas and Silas, they're fellow workers. They're, they're partners, basically, in, in the ministry. So in verse 9, you see, greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. In verses 3 and 4, greet Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Prissa and Aquila actually are really uh, well known in the Bible. Uh, they show up in several different places. Prissa is the shortened version of Priscilla. So in other places, they're known as Priscilla and Aquila. So Prissa is like the Kim is to Kimberly. <clears throat> so this couple actually uh, were tent makers with Paul. Paul, had, he, he did more than just preach the gospel. He had a, he had a job, and his job was, was to make, make tents in those days. They were temporary shelters, basically. So kind of a camping salesman to some degree. And so... This couple apparently made tents with him. That's how they got to know each other. They got to know each other in the city of Corinth, and then they, got to, they knew each other so well that Paul and them traveled together from Corinth to Ephesus, where Priscilla and Aquila stayed behind, and Paul went off. So he planted the church in Ephesus, leaves, and leaves behind Priscilla and Aquila, and on Paul's uh, tail comes this guy, Apollos who's a really gifted preacher, Christian guy. He comes, he's a traveling teacher. And he starts preaching to the, to the church in Ephesus, and he gets most stuff right, right? But after the sermon, they pull him aside. It's kind of what you've wanted to do with me every week, right? Pull, pull him aside to correct a few things. So they pull Apollos aside, and they say, this dear woman, Priscilla and Aquila, they get her husband, Aquila, they sit down, and they say, listen, uh, you got this stuff right, but this other stuff you need to understand, because actually, this is the real gospel, and you're kind of a little bit incomplete. So these people actually were a really important part of what, God, what Paul was doing, kind of ensuring that the doctrine that he left behind in places like Ephesus would, would persevere and continue, even in spite of other teachers who came along. They were fellow workers. When you, when you read the New Testament, in fact, there are a lot of characters who get a lot of airplay. So, so Paul and, and Peter, and you know, you know names like Luke and maybe Matthew. You know, they wrote the Gospels. But most of the work that was done wasn't done 
just by these guys. Most of the work that was done in the churches was done by fellow workers, or what Paul calls fellow workers. So in that sense, the church then and now is far more like a football team than it is like like a tennis player. So I'll explain that. I used to play tennis when I was younger. Um, I actually won some titles. That shocks you. I know. Uh, I, I really enjoyed tennis. What I liked about it is that you always controlled. Tennis is a very controllable sport. In its truest form, singles, and I know some of you play doubles, but you're wrong. <laughs> if you play singles in tennis, you control the entirety of what goes on. If, if you hit a winner, that's on you. If you hit an error, that's on you. It's just you. So when you practice, you're, you're, you're practicing for a sport that you completely control and you will get all of the glory if you win and you will, you will get all of the blame for your failures. There's nobody else to point to, even though you might point to the chair umpire, you might point to you know, your hurt legs. It's all on you. It's on you, okay? But football's different. Football's like a really team sport, isn't it? I mean, uh, if you're the quarterback of the team, um, for those of you who don't know, that's the guy who throws, throws the ball, okay? <laughs> if you're the quarterback of the team, your success is completely reliant upon the ability of like five other guys in front of you to not let the people across to them come, come over and kill you, right? If, you don't, you, if the people in front of you don't do their job, then you become Russell Wilson and nearly die every time you throw, which is the Seahawks' problem. Is it not? Amen. Amen. Okay. <laughs> if you're the running back for the team, you get the ball and you're supposed to run the ball forward, you're relying that all these other guys are going to block for you. So yes, there are players on a football team that get more glory than others, right? They're more well-known. Russell Wilson's more well-known in Seattle. You know, Aaron Rodgers is known in Green Bay. Tom Brady should not be well-known because he's a cheater. Like, oh, but he's well-known, right? And you get, their, you get their shirts and you wear them because they're well-known. But if they're smart, after they throw their 10 touchdowns or whatever, after the game and they're in the locker room, if they're smart when they ask these guys questions, how did you succeed today? They will say, rightly, I had a lot of help. I had a lot of fellow workers. I make this point because the only superstar in the church of Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ. The rest of us, regardless of what we do, are fellow workers. Now, some of us get more airtime. Hello. <laughs> they, they give us a microphone from time to time. Some of us have roles that might get more, more attention, but those of us in those roles, if we're smart and you get in the locker room afterwards and you say, that was really, that was really great, you threw all those you know, sermon touchdowns, they will say, well, I had a lot of help. Because the church is filled with fellow workers, and there are some churches that don't get this right. It's, it should help you to know that they're not just churches today. They're churches back in Paul's day. The church in Corinth, where he was writing this book to Rome from, really didn't get this right. They actually had, uh, you know, their rock star posters on the wall. Some of them were saying, I'm of Paul. 
he's my favorite, you know? I'm of Apollos, who's a really gifted preacher, according to tradition. I'm of Peter. He was before the rest of them. He's, a, he's the real guy. You know, he came down from the, he, he came from his failure and he's come back. He's my guy. Well, I'm of Jesus, you know, some of them said. Everybody had their star. Everybody had their superstar and everybody had the poster of that particular superstar on their wall. So when Paul knows this about the church in Corinth, he addresses some of these issues in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. Here's what he says in response to this. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. I had my job. Apollos had his job. But we were just fellow workers. God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. They're working to the same objective. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. We are God's fellow workers. You, he says, are God's field, God's building. He's talking to the church there saying, when you see, something, you see it being built, when you see the church being edified, it's because we are, we are building as fellow workers. It's a lovely image. You ever been with a builder before? You drive by a house that maybe they built, they'll slow down. See this house over here? I built it. And you know what they mean by that, Right? you know that they had involvement in building it. But I have been with builders before, and I've said, really? By yourself? Well, of course not. There were subcontractors and other... Right, there were subcontractors. So, yes, it is true in the sense that you built the house, but builders don't build houses. Builders contract other people to build houses, and they organize it. In the end, they say that they built it. But the truth is, if you were in the locker room afterward with them and they were smart, they'd say, we built it. Now, my company's name's on it, but, but we built it. That's what Paul's saying here. We built it. We fellow workers. There's no room for hubris in Christ's church, especially among pastors. There's no room for arrogance because it's a team game. Some people have said to me before, why do you say before the sermon sometimes that I, your name's Jeff, one of the pastors here? Um, it's a secret. It's because I'm one of the pastors here. Yes, but you could say that you're the lead pastor here, and that would be true. Yes, that's true. But I had a lot of help. Ministry is a team game. Secondly, what else do we learn from this, this passage in Romans? Um, look at all the women. Look at all those women. I love the title of that. <laughs> right? Some of you are going to walk away from church. Some of you young men are said, listen, I'm just obeying the pastor here. Okay? <laughs> I'm just looking at all those women. That is not what I mean. <laughs> what I want you to notice is that 28 individuals are named. Ten of them are women. Now that's remarkable because this was written in an era where you don't name women. They can't be trusted to do things in the ancient world. If you were uh, wanting to uh, get a witness for your particular trial to get you off from your murder, or if you wanted to get, you know, to have a witness who saw the event take place when you crashed your chariots into each other. If you, if it was a woman, man, you are out of luck. 
because she can't be trusted to get it right. You know, her blonde hair is scrambling her brain. That's not my view. That is the view of the, of, of the ancient world. That's what they thought, that women just can't be trusted, too emotional, and they can't be sort, you just can't trust them in that way. Especially to do important work. Men do important work. The women don't do important work. And yet you, here you have 10 out of 28 described as people who are doing really important work with Paul. They are fellow workers together with him. So you see some of them here. Phoebe, in the first verse, uh, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant, the word is uh, the Greek word diakonos, so we get the word deacon from it. And in some contexts, it refers to the office of deacon in a church. Probably is what it means here. She's probably a deaconess or a deacon in the church in Syncre. And the reason she's being commended here is because Paul, Paul says, hey, I commend, you, commend her to you, is because she's carrying the letter She's being trusted with the news that we've read through and studied in the book of Romans, being handing it over to these people. I commend to you, our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sancre, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, help her in whatever she may need for you. She's been a patron of many and myself as well. Patrons were uh, benefactors. If you were traveling from one place to another in those days, you would usually stay in the place that you arrived for a long period of time. Travel was difficult. You didn't just hop on a plane or in a car or get to the next location right away. It would be very rare for you to stay just one night in a location. And there were no holiday inns. So you needed to know somebody in that town. And when you got there, you needed to stay there oftentimes for a long period of time. And if you needed to stay there, you needed to get some standing in the city, which would require some legal steps and some financial steps. So how are you going to do all that? What you need is a sponsor. You need a patron, you need a benefactor, so that when you arrive, they can say to you, I got your back. Anything you need here, it's a place to stay, finance while you're here, legal representation, I will take care of it. Usually it's the wealthy people who do this. So what you got in Phoebe is a wealthy deacon of a local church who's got Paul's back and is supporting his ministry. It's probably likely that the work that Paul does in Sancre never would have happened without Phoebe. Junia. You see her name? Verse 7, Romans 16. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners, they're well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Now, there's a big debate about her. The early church thought it was a her, and then around the 1300s, they all changed their mind to say it's a him, and his name's Junius. And then in about the 1600s, they said, nah, it's a her. It's probably a her. It's probably a husband and wife team, Andronicus and Junia, and there's a debate about the translation of this. The reason I'm reading the English Standard Version to you today instead of the NIV, which we usually use, is because the ESV actually does better with the Greek here. The Greek here, the most recent studies would argue that the language should be well-known to the apostles instead of outstanding among the apostles. It's actually not saying that Junia is an apostle herself and a really good one. It's saying that Junia and Andronicus were really well-known to the apostles. Why? Probably because they were imprisoned with Paul. Why do you think they were imprisoned with Paul? Probably the same reason Paul was imprisoned, for their faith. So here you've got a lady who has given everything along with her husband for the faith, so much so that the apostles know about her really well, 
and trumpet her praise. So other women in this, uh, verse 6, greet Mary who has worked hard for you. Verse 12, greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. You know, some parents like uh, give the same first letter to their kids' names. And so this is my kid, Jim, Jones, Jack, Jilly, Jummy, Jummy, right? Right? And you're, all of the rest of us are like, oh, that's a little, that's a little weird. Um, if that's you, um, I just want you to know that you're not alone. Tryphena and Tryphosa. Right here, they're sisters, right? Sisters. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who's been a mother to me as well. I don't know what that means. I mean, I, you want to fill in the blanks. You're like, oh, did she nag you? She's like, doing, did you show up? Clean your shorts, right? Here's some pie, eat it. The point here is that despite, despite cultural values, often to the contrary, women have and do play important roles in Christ's church. Valuable, important roles in Christ's church. You know, in the early church, there's a reason that women were so, they flocked to Christianity from the Roman world. And there were some significant reasons why. One of the reasons was that in the Christian church, there was no such thing as what I'd call a snap divorce. So the way that you could get divorced in those days is if you were a man, you could say to your wife, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. Done. That's it. Woman can't say that to the man. Didn't count. The man can say, the husband can say that to the wife, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. Over what kinds of things? Surely it would be over serious kinds of things. No. No, I actually can show you some ancient Jewish literature that uh, shows that some men would say this line over burnt dinner. I divorce you, oh, that's it. So sick and tired of this sausage souffle being burned. I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. There's some stories actually about how someone went to get the first two out. I divorce you, I divorce you. You want the third one? Do you want the third one? But in the Christian church, that was, not, that was not the case. Men had obligation to their wives and wives to their husbands. Men were called to love their wives as Christ loved the church, giving himself up for her. Very different. You know, in the church, the infanticide was called wicked. Of course it was. You know, infanticide, killing, killing babies. Killing babies was a particular problem for little girls. If you had a little boy in your, in your house, he was going to grow up and support you. If you had a little girl, she was just going to be a drain on you, probably. So if you didn't have enough money or food or anything like that, you would take that little girl and you'd expose her to the elements somehow. The Romans actually had these bathhouses in the middle of their communities. It's where people would wash and clean and use the toilets and things like that. And they have found underneath those Roman bathhouses, against some grates, the skeletal remains of hundreds and hundreds of baby girls. Because girls are worthless, but the Christian church didn't think so. The Christian church said that we are all made in the image of God. Male and female, he created them. So when those little girls were exposed in public, the church gathered them up and welcomed them in. And when they welcomed them in, they counted them as full members of the Christian family. There was no special access that men had to God. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We are all one in Christ. And the church sustained widows in their older age. Widows oftentimes in those days had to get remarried to a man so that they could have financial backing. But instead of the church forcing women to do that and often getting involved in marriage relationships that were really bad... The church said, we'll take care of you. They had widows' roles. Make sure that all the widows in their church were being taken, t- being taken care of. And women were 
you know, like I said before, the women were not trusted with news, with testimony. Who was the first person to receive news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Mary. Isn't that crazy? God, the sovereign God, before the foundation of the world, planned that he was going to invest the news about the resurrection in the mouth of an untrusted, crazy woman. She's to go back and report it to the disciples. Women have played a significant part in the church's history. In fact, there was a, there was a uh, missions movement that happened in the 19th century. If you look around the world today and you say, wow, how did all these churches get into these far-off lands? A lot of that happened during the 19th century from England, a missions movement that spread across the world. And what was central to it was the role of women going out and carrying the gospel to all sorts of places. And so you have phenomenal stories about people like Amy Carmichael, who was, went to a conference in England called the Keswick Conference, and she felt God calling her to ministry. She's one of these folks who's like, oh, God's telling me this, and God's telling me this, and God's telling me this. So she ended up going out to, to Japan, and then she got there and was like, oh, I feel like God's calling me here. And then she got to the other place, and oh, I feel God's calling me here. So she meandered about a bit, right? but eventually ended up in India. And when she got to India, she was there for 55 years. And while she was there, she formed a, gr a group called Sisters of the Common Life, a bunch of single women who decided they were not going to get married. And instead, they said, we are going to, to be mothers to the temple prostitute girls who we're going to rescue from sex slavery in all the Hindu temples around Back in those days, you could, Hindu uh, parents, because little baby girls were not as valuable, they would actually end up selling them to the temple and giving them to the gods for favor. And the temple would take them and use them as sex slaves for the men who would come in and worship the, the, the god. So they, these sisters of the common life, would be seriously secret agents throughout India and pretend to be Hindu sometimes so that they could weasel their way in there and grab the girls and take off. They were accused of kidnapping for 55 years, threatened their lives. Thousands of little girls owe their lives to the sisters of the common life and the dawn of your fellowship. She was a remarkable woman, sweet Amy Carmichael. Gladys Aylward was about this tall, just a, just a little black-haired English woman. She wanted to go to China. She said, God told me to go to China. She was a uh, maid. That's what her job was. And uh, she went and tried out to be a missionary, and they said, you're not smart enough because she had dyslexia. So she went back and said, you know what? I don't care what you say. I'm going to still go to China. <laughs> so she got a, a train ticket, took off. She got as far as Siberia, and then they kicked her off the train. Seriously, no kidding. In the middle of the snow, in the middle of Siberia. There she is, and she has to trudge back like five miles in order to get back to the town. She eventually winds her way down to China. She gets there. They notice, after she starts doing some ministry, they, they notice, the authorities notice, that she has this a way of speaking to all these Chinese women, and she's become really good buddies with lots of them, that, so much so that they invite her into their home. She's just the right height. She's no threat. She looks just like them. And so... The Chinese government came to her and said, listen, we've just passed a law so that the, the women in our area can't foot bind anymore, right? You take uh, your foot and you, you tie it together with, bind it all up so that the toes grow back underneath. That was considered to be beautiful. 
But the, the Chinese government said, no, it's not beautiful and it needs to stop. But they couldn't get anybody to go into the houses who was trusted to tell the women that they should stop doing this. So they said to, to, to Gladys Aylward, Gladys, could you, do you speak Chinese? Yes. Can you go in there and convince them? Yes. Can I say anything else she said while I'm there? Yes. Whatever you want. So the government of China paid for Gladys Aylward to witness the gospel to the entirety of the women. They actually pulled Gladys, who's so trusted, they pulled Gladys Aylward at one point into a prison riot where she lined the prisoners up and she went down the line. Amazing lady, right? She ended up going back to England years and years later and she was asked about her ministry and how she got involved in it. Here's what she said. She said, I wasn't God's first choice. I wasn't God's first choice for what I've done in China. There was somebody else. I don't know who it was. It was God's first choice. It must have been a man. I'm sure he's a wonderful man, a well-educated man. And I don't know what happened. Perhaps he died. Perhaps he wasn't willing. And God looked down, and he saw Gladys Aylward. Man, look at all those women. Second, the third one, um, Christians kiss. This is not related to the women one immediately preceding. I just want that to be clear, right? It's not... Look at all the women and then Christians kiss. So, but here's, here's what I want you to see. Again, the passage about Phoebe. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Sancre, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. So there is a way that you can welcome somebody that is a way that is worthy of the saints, worthy of Christians in how they welcome each other. What does that look like? Last verse, verse 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. What? A holy, wait a minute, a holy kiss? Yeah, well, you've been seen Middle Eastern uh, people on TV or somewhere else, or maybe you have friends with them, and that when you see them, they kiss each other on each cheek. It's a, it's a greeting that they have in that part of the world, and they did during Paul's day. It's a kiss of peace. To show that I'm not going to kill you, I'd rather actually kiss you on both cheeks, I come in, I come in peace. Um, I lived in, in New Zealand, of course, for a number of years, and I got to do some ministry among the Maori people of New Zealand. They were the indigenous people there. Uh, and the way they would greet, each other, greet you was really remarkable. Um, if you were to greet uh, as a guy, if you saw a woman, a Maori woman, she would always kiss you on just one cheek. But if you... If you saw a man, and Maori men are huge, like a, lot of, a lot of the rugby players, right? Come on, come on, that haka, that, those dudes. If you greet one of them, if I came up to one of them and they saw me and we were gonna have a, a, a greeting with each other, we'd, we'd do the hungi. You wanna see a hungi? I bet you do. Andrew, come here. <laughs> I've asked Andrew to come and do the hungi with me. Now here's, here's, the, here's the greeting. In a hungi, we're going to press our foreheads against each other's and then our noses. Are you ready? Get your hands away from me. We don't need to touch me. Come closer. We're not, we're not doing it this way. All right, here we go. Well done. So if Paul were writing to the Maori people, he'd, be, he'd say, uh, greet one another with a holy hungi. Uh, there's a guy on our staff, Freddie, who's one of our pastoral interns. Uh, you, if you don't know Freddie yet, you will soon. He will make sure of it. 
that you know about him, uh, he is always coming to me and he says, come on, Jeff, let's greet me with a holy kiss. Come on, let's greet me with a holy kiss. And I say, don't touch me, Freddie. Don't touch me. I don't want to have anything to do with your lips at all. But what we can do, he said, okay, well, let's do something else. And so we do a, we a holy, he daps me up, you know, a holy dap you up, which is where you, anyway, you do this and then the hug and then, then this and the holy dap with Freddie, right? The form, the point is the form doesn't matter. The form is cultural. Holy kiss. In fact, I, I would recommend not kissing each other. And I would recommend hesitating on the hugs, gentlemen, Okay. In our culture today, I just stay away from all of that, but there is a way that Christians ought to greet one another that is holy. Greet, Greet one another with a holy greeting. Well, what's a holy greeting? Well, it's a greeting like they gave Phoebe, a way that is worthy of the saints. It's not a greeting that is... Holding a grudge. You know what I mean? When you see somebody you got a thing against or they got a thing against you. Hey, how's it going? Fine. No. The reason Christians ought not do that is because we don't hold grudges against each other. We, we, we don't greet one another with an unholy kiss like Judas did because we're not trying to be deceitful with one another. We're not trying to stab each other in the back or play politics with each other. We're transparent with our relationships and open with them. Even if we've had a bad history together, we sort it out so that we can greet one another with a holy kiss. One of my favorite people in our church is a guy named Frank Martins, who was the, he was the, the interim lead pastor when I first arrived here as the young adults pastor. Frank, uh, therefore, was my boss. I remember I had to, he called me on the carpet one day because I had done something stupid like every young adults pastor does Right, and he called me into his office, and Frank was always really kind, and hey, this is what you did wrong, and these sorts of things, and we can't have that, and this isn't going to work. And of course, me being a young guy, I'm like, actually, Frank, you're wrong because your name's Frank, whatever it was that I was <laughs> mad about. So we had this thing, this little issue, and I remember walking out of the, of the room, not totally agreeing with him, but receiving my just punishment. And I thought, oh, is this going to be weird? I've been in situations before where somebody corrects you and then your relationship is kind of tarred and you're not sure, are, are we okay, are we weird? It's like kind of awkward for a while. Anyway, I saw Frank the next day and I saw him down the hallway and I was like, oh no, how's this going to go? And Frank lifted his eyes from the paper he had and he goes, Jeff! <laughs> he walks toward me and he gives me his big bear hug and I'm like stiff, <laughs> okay, okay. Ah, that's a holy kiss. That's a holy kiss. He wasn't holding a grudge. He wasn't looking back and saying, hey, man, there's, we've got issues with each other. We sort our issues out because we're Christians. And we greet one another with a holy kiss. Finally, fourth one. True faith passes the test. Um, verse 10, you read this little line, greet Apelles who is approved in Christ. That's the mark of this guy. He was approved in Christ. That word means to be proven to be genuine through testing. James 1 verse 12 uses the word, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, okay, when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Somebody who is steadfast under trial passes 
the test. Job, we would say, passed the test because Satan comes to God and God has this conversation with Satan at the beginning of the book of Job and God says, hey, have you considered Job? And Satan says, the only reason Job follows you is because you coddle him. And if you let me at him, he will turn his back on you so fast. You watch, God, you watch. The rest of the book is about how Job loses everything, but he doesn't turn his back on God. And at the end, what do we say about Job? We say he was approved. Like Apelles, he was approved. Because his faith, which was all talk at some point, had gone through the ringer and come out the other side refined. It had become approved faith. One of the things that I've learned about in my time as a pastor is that whenever I'm talking to a Christian, I am talking to somebody who is three things at once. Number one, I'm talking to somebody who is a saint. Christians are amazing people. They do amazing things. There's a guy in our church who gave a kidney to another guy in our church. He, didn't, he barely knew. Guy needed a kidney. This other dude said, I've got two. You can have one. I know people in our church who are involved in uh, adopting kids with special needs. Well, the rest of the society, if they find out that a child has Down syndrome, will abort as fast as they can. This family finds out that there's a kid with Down syndrome and says, we'll take him. Christians are amazing people. Amazingly kind and giving and the spirit of God is flowing out of them so that they show love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. They're remarkable people. They're saints. They're also sinners. And sometimes despicably so, in the quiet, when nobody else is watching, we do stuff that we are horribly unproud about. I don't know if you've been following the news, but pastors these days seem to have a penchant for sexual sin. Inviting women up to their hotel rooms who work with them at the church and doing a Harvey Weinstein sort of thing. Pastors in the Southern Baptist Convention in the United States who are being passed around from church to church because the first one, they, you know, sexually assaulted little girls. So maybe if a new, you know, a new environment will help them. So we'll give them another one. Oh, they did it again. We'll give them another environment. What? It's despicable. It's despicable. You've never been hurt until you've been hurt by a Christian business, yeah? Because you go in expecting Christians, we can trust them. You get the other end, you're like, oh, my word. It's worse than what the rest of the society does. I'm never doing business with a Christian again, I hear people say. We're saints. We're sinners. And we're also sufferers. Nobody who is hearing my voice right now is free of something that is grinding their heart into the pavement. Everybody's got something. You walk through the doors with a thing that is bringing you sorrow, and the older you get, the more of them you have. This last week, I talked to some parents who, whose kids have horrible sicknesses, 
Children have come down with cancer. Children who can't get right after years and years of prayer. And the parents say, it would be one thing if it were my thing because at least I could, I could try to deal with it and I could put it in some kind of perspective. But my child, my ch- what is God doing, they say to you, pastor? What is God doing? I sat across the table from a young man upstairs a few years ago who had cancer and he sat next to me and he said, I need you to explain to me what God is doing by allowing a 20-year-old guy to have cancer. Answer, pastor, he said, leaned forward in his chair. I don't. I don't know. I do know that in those moments is where your faith is tested, yes? It's the trials that you are called to be remain steadfast in, 1 Peter 4.12. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This is the way it works. You profess massive faith in the harbor. I love Jesus. And then he takes you out of the harbor into the great winds, and it's in the winds that you realize whether or not the mast will hold. And some of you are in the wind. And you should read a verse like Apelles, who's approved in Christ, and say, I want that affixed to my name. At the end of days, when God brings me before his throne, I want him to smile and say, Sam, Jeff, Jenny, approved in Christ. That it wasn't, it wasn't just talk. It made it through to the desired goal, and God will do it. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in the day of Christ. He's asking you, many of you, to step forward and keep going, take another breath, get off the mat, and go again. Who knew there was so much in enlisted names? Let me pray. Father, I'm so thankful for your grace. I'm thankful, Father, that... uh, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for reproof and correction and training and righteousness that the men and women of God may be fully equipped for every good work. So equip us, we pray, by the power of your spirit for every good work. As we carry these things forward, transform our lives by the power of the spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.